Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Tony Ria. So good to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for being with us. How many of you have been thinking and praying about spring? Pray harder. Uh, Just kidding. I'm on my way to church this morning, and it was almost like a complete whiteout on Ryan Road. A blizzard. You know, God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? You snowbirds that are thinking about making your way back to Michigan, delay a week. Just kidding. We're welcoming you back whenever you're ready to come back. But it's good to be in the house of the Lord today, uh, just to be in God's presence and to enjoy sharing with each other and worshiping together. Uh, Last Sunday, we started a brand new series entitled 30, and the origin of the 30 series comes from a milestone event that took place on February 2nd of this year, namely our 30-year anniversary. And we're excited about that. As Darlene mentioned just a few moments ago in the video, special celebration in two weeks from today on April the 10th. And with the 30 series, what we want to do is take a few moments and rehearse the ministry philosophy of our church. And now I'm talking about our five main core values that we've wrapped neatly around the acronym or the word grace. And just so there's no confusion, the mission of our church is a little bit different than our core values. The mission of our church has been the same for the last 30 years, is to preach the gospel message and get people saved. And once people make a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, we want as a church to help you become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Not a follower of mine, not a disciple of Community Christian, but a follower and disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to help you get there to the place of full devotion, a long time ago we came up with five different core values. So I'm going to ask you to help me out again uh, as we go through these one more time. G, God deserves to be first. R, relationships matter. A, acts of service. C, compassion for others. And E, everything belongs to God. And today in lesson number two of this series, we want to look at the R in grace, relationships matter. Can I get you to say that? They're important. They're valuable. They're significant in the word of God. The scripture tells us it was sometime during the final year of Jesus' earthly ministry when the religious leaders, the scribes, and the Pharisees, out of envy and jealousy, began to hound and harass him. And please understand, they were on his case from day one. They never really liked Jesus. And they were always looking over his shoulder, always interrupting his ministry, attempting to intimidate him and find fault. And then after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and gained increased popularity among the Jewish people, 
I mean, the scripture tells us that the multitudes followed him from place to place, and everyone in towns and villages from the entire region followed Jesus. That's when the religious leaders became overly agitated with Jesus. And they didn't just hate him, they wanted him dead. Did, did you hear that? God's leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, they wanted to kill Jesus. John chapter 11, verse 53 tells us, not long after Lazarus was raised from the dead, the scripture says from that day on, the religious leaders, they, the religious leaders, plotted to take his life. Can you imagine that? Not just angry or upset with Jesus. Not just green with envy because of the added attention he was getting from the Jewish community. They wanted him dead. There was so much venom and so much poison in their hearts that they literally met together and they discussed ways and opportunities to take Jesus out. And that was the precise frame of mind the religious leaders were in when they approached Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. And Matthew chapter 22 and verse 15 tells us, Then the Pharisees went out, and they laid plans to trap him in his words. The King James Version says they took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk or in his speech. Friends, this passage here describes a very calculated and deliberate conspiracy against Jesus. Now I'm talking about a premeditated, pre-planned evil to get Jesus to slip up and say something that they could use in their attempt to build an airtight criminal case against him. You see, they didn't ask Jesus questions off the top of their heads. When they were grilling him, when they uh, started to talk to him and, and uh, do what the scriptures say, get him to uh, trip up and say something uh, wrong, it, it didn't just happen. They planned it. They worked on the exact dialogue for days and days with the intent to catch Jesus in a verbal ambush. But guess what? Jesus was ready for them. He was prayerfully prepared and he was in the zone spiritually. And it wasn't like he crammed the night before. He populated the place of prayer. He spent time seeking the Lord every single day, just like Pastor Chris encouraged us a couple of months ago, a couple of weeks ago during his message. When the religious leaders approached Jesus that day, he was well aware of their collusion. And he basically said to them, bring it on. And so in the opening verses of Matthew chapter 22, the religious leaders bullied Jesus with two controversial issues. The first one had uh, a lot to do with money and paying taxes to Caesar. And how I many you know that's a sensitive issue? The other one was all about resurrection from the dead. 
But it appeared as though that strategy backfired when Jesus responded because the Bible tells us that the crowd that was listening to Jesus marveled. They were in awe with his answers. And that's when the religious leaders decided to bring out their secret weapon, a fast-talking, hot-shot attorney who demanded that Jesus identify the greatest commandment in the law. And keep in mind, there were like some 613 laws and commands that God had given to the people of Israel through Moses. And now this lawyer wants Jesus to break it all down and single out just one commandment. And again, Jesus didn't skip a beat. Without hesitation or vacillation, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, this is what Jesus said. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And Jesus continued and said, the second is like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, Jesus said, just by obeying these two, loving God and loving people, in essence, you are keeping and fulfilling the other 611. Just those two. And friend, for the past 30 years now, this has been the backbone of our message. We have established and built our doctrine, our ministry philosophy, and our teaching on this very principle and foundation, what I like to call the Matthew 22 remarkable response. And again, it's twofold. Jesus said, number one, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. In other words, put God first. We talked all about that last week. Jesus said the second commandment is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, relationships matter. And according to Jesus, they both are important, both paramount, both extremely significant. Now, over the years, I've had many good Christians. I mean, I'm talking about faithful, committed Christians tell me isn't my service and my love for God enough? I mean, if I love God with all of my heart and I trust God and I put my faith in him and I obey his commandments and I put him first, isn't that enough? Well, apparently not. Because in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said, you need them both. You have to love God and you have to also be willing to get along with other people. And just to be clear, loving God and believing that God raised Jesus from the dead, repenting of your sins and confessing Jesus' lordship in your life, that's enough for salvation. Are we clear on that? That's what you need in order to be saved. But friends, salvation is not the end game. Did you know that? It's the beginning. It's the starting point. And yes, you want to be saved. You want your name written in the Lamb's book of life. 
And you certainly want to secure your place in heaven as opposed to the alternative. But in addition to all that, the ultimate spiritual goal is to be made in the image and likeness of God. This is what God is after in our lives. He wants us to be made in his image and likeness. And now we're talking about walking around here on earth right now, not in the hereafter, but right here, right now, with a Matthew 22 merciful and loving heart that has been changed and transformed by the power of God's grace. That's the real pie in the sky. Amen. That's what God is after. In Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26, God said, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to remove from you your heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, a tender heart, a pliable, loving heart. God said, I'm going to do that for you. And friends, as a believer, I'm sorry to tell you, that doesn't happen overnight. Having a heart of flesh does not happen automatically. I wish it did. I wish on day one of our spiritual conversion, as soon as we hit our knees at the cross, that this would happen in our lives. That we would no longer possess a selfish or a stubborn heart. But that is not the case. Heart transformation takes time. And it takes a lot of work. And it requires precision and expertise. And check this out now. One of the greatest tools that God uses to soften the human heart and turn it into a heart of flesh is people. I'm going to say that again for those of you who are daydreaming. One of the greatest tools that God uses to soften the human heart and turn it into a heart of flesh is people. God uses the various relationships we have to rework and rearrange our hearts from the inside out. And with regard to this whole subject matter, Philippians chapter 2 sheds a lot of light on this particular issue. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 7, or 3 through 7. Here's what it says. Do nothing. How much? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with God, right? Oh, oh, in your relationships with one another. Must be a mistake here. In your relationships with each other, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Do you know how powerful a passage of scripture this is right here? 
one that we read over, one that we quote, one that we memorize. The scripture says, in your relationships with one another, emulate the humility found in Jesus. You know, oftentimes we think good Christianity is to walk humbly before the Lord. You know, to do our best to overcome temptation, to trust God even in difficult situations, to not become arrogant or prideful when we get a win of some kind. And I agree, that's pretty good Christianity. But according to the passage that we just read in Philippians, outstanding Christianity is to emulate this same humility in all of our relationships. To actually put as much effort in our dealings with other people that we would in our relationship with God. You see, God actually uses the connection and associations that we have with other people, our family members, our friends, our neighbors, and even people that oppose us to build that same humility, kindness, and gentleness in us that we see in Jesus. And why is that? Because relationships matter, even the most difficult ones even the ones that drive us crazy. You see, we stand a way better chance of working through conflict, overcoming personality quirks, and digging a fence out of our hearts when we view people in this light. When we say, oh my gosh, this person, I can't take it anymore. They definitely have major issues to deal with. They are driving me nuts. But, but, if the relationship is valuable and important to God, if it matters to God, then it matters to me. If God is interested in this relationship in my life, then I'm going to work as hard as I can to make this relationship work. Now, just a few hours before Jesus went to the cross, something very dramatic happened in his relational life. And I want to take a quick look at it this morning. It's found in the Gospel of John, John chapter 13. We have to read a few verses here. Let's begin reading with verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothes and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. All right, let's pause right here for a moment. This past week, as I reviewed this story yet again, and please understand, this is a 
a passage of Scripture. It's a portion of Scripture that I've read countless times. I'm very familiar with it. And when I read it again, I got stuck on the last part of verse 1, John chapter 13 and verse 1. Here's what it says. Having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus now showed them the full extent of his love. How many know that's a powerful statement right there? That Jesus was about to show his disciples the totality or the completeness, the full extent of his love. Now, when I read that, I thought to myself, that's what he's been doing for three and a half years. He has literally taken his disciples in. He's worked with them. He's prayed with them. He has spent time with them, mentoring them. He, he's taken them by the hand and has given them insight into the heart of the Father. I mean, Jesus invested himself in these disciples. So what does it mean he now showed them the full extent of his love? And I understand the cross was a part of that. And that his sacrifice on the cross was the single act of love that anyone could ever demonstrate. But the scripture says now, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Not he was going to, or they could look forward to him doing something in the future. And so according to this passage, John 13, 1, whatever Jesus had in mind was going to happen in that moment, taking place right then and there. And what does he do? He gets up from the dinner table, takes off his jacket, grabs a basin of water, and begins to wash his disciples' feet. And the scripture is very clear. All of the disciples were there, all 12 of them, and one by one, he washed all of their feet, made them put their fork down, said, you guys aren't eating right now. We're going to wait a little bit of time out. And they had to wait until he was finished, put the basin away, went back to his place at the table, he sat down, and the scripture says, as soon as Jesus sat down, recorded in John chapter 13 and verse 21, he said, he was troubled in spirit, and here's what he said, one of you is going to betray me. So Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He sat back down at the table. As soon as he sat down, he looked at his disciples, and he said, one of you. Is going to betray me, and he was just having a hard time with it. He was troubled. Any idea why he was troubled? Because all during the time that he was washing Judas's feet, he was thinking about Judas sticking a knife in his back. Do you know that hurt him? This was a friend. This is somebody he'd done life with for three and a half years. And he just washed Judas' feet. Judas would eventually betray Jesus, but not just betray him, betray him with a kiss. And here's our 30 verse for this week. Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 through 16. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. 
So right after Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, he made eye contact with Judas. Can you imagine what must have been going through Judas's mind? He looked at him, eyeball to eyeball. And he said to Judas, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. In other words, why don't you go and cut the deal with the enemy and make sure they pay you all of the money that they've committed to paying you, all 30 pieces of silver. And what blows my mind, I mean, actually, absolutely blows me away. I have a really hard time with this. Is why Jesus didn't send Judas packing before he washed his feet. Why did he wait until afterwards? I would never wash his feet. But Jesus specifically waited until after he washed all the disciples' feet, went back to the table, and that's when he mentioned the betrayal. Why did he do that? Because of the verse that we've landed on here in John chapter 13. He now showed and revealed and expressed to his disciples the full extent of his love. Not just a little bit of the love that he was given to them. Not just the outrageous sacrifice that he was going to make on the cross. We're talking full extent of the love that he had. The epitome and the height of his love, a true reflection of the same love the Father has for us, was to continue to value the relationship he had with Judas. I'm going, to I'm going to say that to you again because that was worth you driving to church in that snowstorm this morning. The height, epitome, and full extent of Jesus' love was to continue to value the relationship that he had with Judas. Even though Judas was going to betray him and he knew it. Even though Judas would succumb to his own fleshly desire and in the process, double-cross the Savior of the world. Still, Jesus exercised humility. He willingly, purposely, and intentionally stooped down to wash his filthy feet. Are you getting this? Are you understanding why the scripture would say he now showed them the full extent of his love? Who does that? Who values relationships with people who are our enemies, who betray us, who double-cross us, who do us wrong, who hurt us, who offend us? Jesus does. And he says that he wants us to emulate that example and not only have that kind of attitude in our relationship with God, but with one another. Now, during that same foot washing episode that took place there in the Gospel of John, as Jesus was making his way, washing all of the disciples' feet, there came a time when he approached Peter. And when he got to Peter, he put the basin down and he was prepared to wash Peter's feet. And you remember how Peter reacted, or how he responded? Not a chance, Jesus. There is no way in this world that I'm going to allow you to wash my feet. 
Don't even think about it. It's not happening. And here's what Jesus said to Simon in John chapter 13 and verse 7. What I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. Simon said, no, Jesus said, let it be. You don't understand it right now, but you will. Jesus said to Peter, I know this makes absolutely no sense to you. In your own mind, it's ludicrous. But there's going to come a time when you comprehend what I'm doing here. You're going to comprehend and understand my motivation. Because this last lesson, Peter, that I'm teaching you is all about humility. And when it comes to relationships, you'll find this throughout the scripture, starting with Jesus, there's nothing more powerful than humility. I'm going to say that again. With our relationships, humility is very powerful. I want you to think about this. Six weeks after Jesus washed Peter's feet. So there was the Passover. Jesus revealed a servant's heart. He washed all the disciples' feet. He was arrested. He went to the cross. He died on the cross. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. Uh, there was the time that the disciples had with Jesus uh, after the resurrection. And now we are six weeks later, and everybody is together. Jesus is there. Peter's there. The other ten disciples are there. The only one who isn't there is Judas. He's dead. They're on the Mount of Olives. And that's when the disciples watch Jesus ascend into heaven. I mean, he, he goes behind the clouds. One minute he's there talking with the group. The next minute he just vanishes into thin air. And Simon Peter is there rubbing his eyes to make sure that what he just saw, what he witnessed, was actually happening. And this is speculation on my part. In other words, I don't have any scriptural basis for what I'm about to tell you. But I believe that as Peter watched Jesus vanish out of sight, time stood still, and in his mind, he raced back over the past three and a half years from the time that he first met Jesus. And he recalled everything that he experienced with Jesus. The lessons, the parables, the stories, the miracles, the times that they spent together, praying together. It all resonated in his heart. It, it, it just went right, flashed right in front of him. And one of the distinct memories that he had was that final Passover foot washing session. And he heard the words of Jesus loud and clear. Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing right now, but there's going to come a day, there's going to come a day when you do understand it. And that was the day when Peter fully comprehended the lesson that Jesus was attempting to reveal to him. And he understood that the man who took off his garment, grabbed a basin and a towel, 
and stooped down to wash his dusty feet was the same man who ascended up into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Oh my gosh. And right then and there, on the top of that mountain, on the Mount of Olives, Peter received a divine revelation. And here it is. Power and majesty are not diminished in the slightest when you display humility. I'm going to say it again. Power and majesty is not diminished one tiny bit when you display humility. In fact, from God's perspective, humility will always elevate you to the highest place. And not only did Simon Peter learn that lesson, it was a truth he fully embraced. And I know that because of 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Here's what he wrote. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. I've mentioned this to you on countless occasions over the years. Humility is a big deal to God. And all of us, in one way or another, we are going to learn the humility lesson. All believers, no exceptions. In fact, in Luke chapter 14 and verse 11, here's what Jesus said. For those of you who exalt yourselves, what? You will be humble. And for those of you who humble yourselves will be exalted. Bottom line, one way or the other, we're all getting humbled. It's as if God said, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. But we are all going to learn the lesson. And again, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, one of the most powerful verses in the entire Bible when it comes to relationships, do nothing out of selfish ambition, rather in humility, value, esteem, regard others, your relationships above yourselves. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, these are very convicting lessons from your word. Because today it's just so difficult to approach the subject of relationships with an attitude of humility. We thank you, Lord, for the appeal that you make to us in your word and the example that you leave for us. That your scripture your powerful truth in your word would reveal to us what would become the fullest extent of Jesus' love. And it had everything to do with the relationships he had with his men. Father, I pray. And this has been our prayer for years and years. That as the people of God, we would put you first that we would love you with a heart of devotion and sell out to the gospel message. And at the same time, 
understand how valuable and how important it is to love one another. We wish sometimes, Lord, it would just be you and me. If we only had to just surrender our lives to you. But you said, let this mind that was in Christ Jesus also be in us. He humbled himself. He washed his disciples' feet. He maintained relationships. He showed us his love. Holy Spirit, help us. We want that pure heart, Lord. We want that Matthew 22, loving and tender heart. Not a heart of stone. Not a heart that's filled with bitterness and animosity, conflict and hatred toward others. We want the purity that you offer to us. And so thank you, Spirit of the living God, for speaking to us as only you can. Minister in these closing moments of our service, we pray. Amen.